0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Hello and welcome to what's quite a confronting health report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. It's almost trite to say it because it's been said so often, but it's still true that talking about death has replaced sex as the big taboo. But new research, and while it is a small study, it is pretty much one of a kind so far, has found a brainwave signature that might indicate hyper-awareness in the minutes before some of us die. If it's true, it could explain all kinds of phenomena that some have explained as proof of religious belief, or the existence of the supernatural. Associate Professor Jimo Borgigan works in integrated physiology at the University of Michigan Medical School, Ann Arbor, and led this work on what are called gamma waves in the brain. Mm, thank you. What are gamma oscillations? What do we know about them in normal life?
2: Gamma oscillations with the frequency is higher than 25 hertz, that is 25 oscillations in a second. So it's very fast.
1: So this is measured on the electroencephalograph?
2: Correct. EEG.
1: So if you or I were lying having an EEG done, what proportion mm-hmm. of our oscillations would be gamma oscillations in normal life, just when we're lying there peacefully?
2: Oh, very little. When you're relaxed, not doing intense thinking, conscious activities and gamma activities, are actually a very small portion of your overall brain activity.
1: So if you give me a maths test to do, do the gamma oscillations go up?
2: Gamma oscillation go up when you encounter... Unexpected situations, when you recognize a face in a crowd or alerted to some danger, for instance, then your gamma activity goes up. So it's an indication of an elevated conscious activity.
1: And also an indication of stress in some situations. Correct. Give me a little bit of the history of looking at brainwave activity in people who are dying or near miss deaths.
2: That's a really good question, actually. <laughs> I wasn't hired to study electrical activity with the brain, I was studying circadian rhythms. But one accidental discovery led me to wonder how healthy persons or healthy animals die. Dying is such an integral part of all living beings and should be well understood. But when I started searching literature, I realized that's not the case. We know very little about the entire dying process in terms of brain activity. And so we know there's somebody collapsed to the ground, seemingly losing all senses, and there's no activities, and it's not walking, talking. So we thought the brain is no longer working. At the same time, I learned that there's something called a near death experience. When people describe this as something realer than real, that so made this is me when wonder. they've
1: had a cardiac arrest. And they come back, that, and, they, yes. and they say, "I feel it's almost consistent what they say. I feel my body leaving itself and then coming back in."
2: Correct. That tells me that unless that near-death experience is truly from extracorporeal sources, if it comes from the brain, that must mean from the time you collapse to the ground until you die, the brain must be undergoing something very fascinating that represents neurosignatures of consciousness.
1: It's hard to study in humans, though. You can't be there for every cardiac arrest. can't be at home if somebody dies at home.
2: That is so true. And We were able to do this in animal models, but in animals, even if we do resuscitate them, we could not talk to them to see what they experienced. So in humans, we then thought maybe the withdrawal of life support in comatose patients may be close to a situation of letting somebody die in ICU city.
1: Which is still not necessarily normal because the assumption is that if you're removing life support, the brain is so affected that it's not going to maintain life if you remove the support. Yeah,
2: when we went into the study, we just thought – if we study enough of these patients, maybe some of them might have residual activity, may show some interesting or intense activities. And so we didn't really expect much because if you look at the four patients we looked at, they were all judged beyond medical help. So the brain shows no sign of having any activity, at least overt activity, that nothing is showing. So we just decided, well, we're going to analyze EEG activity anyway to see what we find. And what we we're people? shocked.
1: What did you find out?
2: were There's a massive activation of gamma activity as soon as we removed the ventilator. So in the four patients.
1: But this is a small study. Was it in all four patients?
2: No, we studied four patients in detail. So we followed their dying process literally second by second by examining both EKG activity as well as uh, EEG activity. Today the electrocardiogram
1: we... to see what the heart's doing.
2: Correct. Electrocardiogram using the technique we invented in the lab called electrocardia matrix. And we were very surprised to find two of the four patients showed very unexpected, very marked surge of gamma activity.
1: And what was happening with the heart, given yes. that you were coordinating the two pieces of data?
2: Yes, we think the two pieces of data really go hand in hand. So what happened to the heart is as soon as you remove the ventilator, as you could imagine, if the patient have an intact autonomic nervous system, then they should try to gasp, you know, looking for air, right? The brain say, Oh, give me some oxygen to breathe. So they autonomic system may be activated. So this is indeed the case for two of the four patients who had a gamma oscillation activated. Their heart rate increased during the initial phase as soon as you remove the ventilator. And in the same two patients, we saw the activation of the gamma oscillation.
1: Did they take, oh, I'm so but did they take longer to die than the other two?
2: No, actually no. So all four patients died within 30 minutes. So the very first patients, that showed very dramatic activation of gamma oscillation, died within 10 minutes after a ventilator was removed.
1: So the question that everybody listening to this conversation is asking now, does that mean they had a period of hyper-awareness before they died?
2: For the two of four patients, yes, I believe so. But of course, we'll never know because they did all die. So we'll never find that out. But uh, there were neurosignatures of a consciousness. We are pretty sure of that.
1: I mean, this sets the kind of amongst the pigeons for intensive care units, for yes. organ donations and what Oh matter? my gosh,
2: yes. We actually next research direction that so we want to know similar kind of covert brain activity exists in the patients before the ventilator withdrew. So that if we can detect that by a similar approach, that would mean that many patients who had a covert conscious brain activities, that were undiscovered and they were let go, their life support was to So I think in the future, this line of research might be able to help with the clinical prognosis of comatose patients.
1: In other it. words, these people might recover at some point.
2: They might. They might have. So, you, I mean, this yeah. is
1: a tiny, tiny study and could yes. mean absolutely nothing. Is there any yes. other research from anywhere else in the world that supports what you're saying in human research?
2: Not by the same kind of method, because our study probably is the first to follow the dying process of any human being, second by second, from the time that heart I and mean, the life supporters were the, withdrew. But there was a, one study published last year in journal Frontiers of Aging Research, and that study showed very small activation of gamma activity, But the dying process of that person was not followed continuously and the EKG was not monitored or analyzed. So we don't know exactly what the heart was doing during that process.
1: So at the moment, you've got two of your patients and one patient in another study. So the best you can say is there's a signal there that needs further research. If it's true and does happen... Could this explain Mm -hmm. the near-death experience, that you go through this acute stress, your body Mm -hmm. is temporarily Mm -hmm. dying, and the the gamma surge makes you think that you are left your body?
2: The neurosignatures we discovered, shown in our paper, does have a correlation with neurosignatures in studies that show, for instance, out-of-body experience, for instance, visual activation, auditory activation, for instance, speech perception which is all clustered in the back half of your brain, okay, in the posterior half of the brain, in the place is called a TPO junction. That's been really studied by a number of labs is showing that it's a anatomical location for the minimum neural correlates of consciousness. So I'm pretty confident that this study really, in a way, just lays the foundation for further studies. I doubt included every single subjective experiences that other people experienced because there are millions of people experience near-death experiences. So I think that I doubt this particular patient, even if, even if she survived, she would be able to tell every single type of subjective experience.
1: Because the brain is potentially so damaged. I mean, this raises all sorts of Questions, obviously, yes. I mean, for example, in people with dementia, it's been yes. observed in, in the period before they actually die. They often have a very lucid moment where they remember everything. They can see everybody.
2: And uh, are these gamma oscillations
1: the coming out in somebody with dementia? Terminal
2: lucidity. Yeah. yeah, I would not be surprised if terminal lucidity shares uh, similar features, especially when their vital organs start to fail rapidly. And I think that will be potentially a big trigger for activation these kind of activities.
1: Two questions. One is, mm-hmm. how did you feel yourself during this study, given that we're all going to die? And some of us will die in
2: an intensive care unit. Yeah, well, <laughs> that is a very good question, very loaded question. Do I think twice to say I want to donate my organs if I die from car accident? Uh, I actually might have internal awareness, but no one could find out. So I think that science, maybe more research will find out more about covert consciousness. So I think that in terms of dying in the intensive care unit, in terms of organ donation, I think that it does have lots of implications for those kinds of situations. But in terms of what I, if I truly did, where I think I would be going, I always tell people, I think I will just become a stardust.
1: <laughs> and what's your conclusion about the near-death experience?
2: I do believe the near-death experience really is the product of the brain. So it comes from the dying brain. And potentially it's a part of the, Survival mechanism. We still need to study about,
1: and it could possibly be in an ancient history where the ideas of heaven and hell and the afterlife come from.
2: Oh well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say direct straight out like that, but it would actually help further understanding along that way. And I think we need a lot more studies, and we definitely need to study that is showing from survivors. Okay, so I wish that if the two of the four patients survived and tell a story, that would be stronger evidence to show that neuro-signatures we discovered truly represent a near-death experience. So since we don't have that piece yet, so more studies need to be done.
1: Well, I can't say this has been the most comfortable interview I've ever done, but it's been fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Well, that probably got your gamma waves going. Associate Professor Jim O. works in integrated physiology at the University of Michigan, and Arbor. And you're with The Health Report, where we're not letting this death thing go.
3: The Death Cafe itself is a worldwide movement. It's nothing new. It's a non-judgmental space to speak about death and dying with anyone who wants to come. I've just felt as though the whole idea of death and dying, the topic, is quite taboo. They might not feel comfortable to open up that conversation, even with family members. So um, with strangers, it becomes more accessible, especially knowing that you're not going to be judged.
1: That's from a film on theatrical release around Australia at the moment called Live the Life You Please, which is nowhere near as morbid as you might think. Joy, fulfillment, happiness, and love. What if I said you could find these things in the most unexpected places? This story is about what makes us who we are, about what we believe in and about the things that really matter. This is a story about life and death. Yes, I said it, the D word. Because the good news is that talking about death won't kill you. The thing is, though, nobody wants to discuss it. But avoiding the subject might be making it harder for each of us. The filmmaker is Mike Hill. Welcome to The Health Report.
0: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Norman.
1: What did you learn about yourself in this film, which really is about a lot of different people living the life they please?
0: I had a sneaking suspicion after I'd worked on some other projects that involved folks that were helping others at end of life, that there was something that didn't make a lot of sense from the outside, which was this group were often really upbeat (laughs) really positive although helping people right towards the end of their lives and i wondered why that was and as i dug in further i discovered that people who are drawn to this field often have that extra perspective that comes with being conscious of your mortality and that fear of death it seemed to fall away largely for them and they were much more in the moment and prioritizing the things that they felt were really important and that's what we've hoped to capture in the film as well
1: but i asked you about you was it therapy for you
0: It was, yeah, of course. I think for all of us, it's very natural for us to not want to put death and dying at the forefront of our mind. I think that's an incredibly normal thing and I'm no different to others there. However, when you allow yourself to turn your mind to it, and we certainly did for an extended period while making the film, it really helped me personally to reassess what was important to me and to think about where I wanted to spend the precious time I had and the things I wanted to be doing and who I wanted to be doing them with. So it made a big impact
1: impact. The film is narrated by Simon Waring, who's just had an extraordinary coincidence of tragedy in a sense, which he's surmounted magnificently. A baby dying at birth, a child dying of childhood cancer, almost coincidentally at the same time as his wife dying of breast cancer without giving too much away. There are lots of stories like that, where it's not just one misfortune that people have experienced. It's many. But even when it's been one. The lifelong impact is enormous, but not necessarily, as you say, as negative as people might think.
0: Yeah, that's right. Simon's story and many other stories in the film, they seem intolerable, don't they, when you say it like that? Like, how do you bounce back from that? However, Simon and, you know, everyone that we worked with had bounced back and they'd found something through that grief and bereavement. And for Simon, he just articulates it beautifully around the gratitude he has, particularly the gratitude he had toward being able to spend quality time with his loved ones towards the end of their lives and how he carries that forward every day in terms of prioritizing the things that he finds to be really important. And that was a recurring theme that we heard over and over again from people from all different walks of life around Australia.
1: I suppose the core theme or idea running through the story is that palliative care is much misunderstood.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of them. I think the other part of it is that it's misunderstood. And because we don't often like talking about End of life, and that can cause all types of other complications. But this idea that palliative care is misunderstood came up time and time again when people said, I got referred to palliative care and I thought that was the end. However, many of the people we worked with on this film had been receiving palliative care for years and they were going in and out of palliative care facilities. Often services were being provided in their homes. And what we know now, and you would know this better than anyone, is that palliative care actually prolongs life and improves life and keeps people out of hospitals, which is all win-win-win in my book.
1: And people are so terrified of the idea of palliative of care they get referred to late when it is the last few weeks of life rather than two years beforehand when they could have lived life much better
0: yeah that's right and i think that's a really important message for us to hear as australians because that's going to improve our experiences the experiences of those we care for but really importantly it's going to save the health
1: system a lot of money what was the story that moved you the most in the film
0: Oh, look! There are so many Norman There was just incredible stories from around the country. But I think, as a father of young children myself, you know simon 's story about losing his son, I found very, very powerful, but also others who 've been you know struck down by some serious illness in the middle of their lives um, really hit home for me and I was so impressed time and time again to see what people had decided to do with the time they had when they got a serious illness in their 30s or 40s. There's a story there of Annalise from Geelong who is spending a lot of her time not only getting treatment for her cancer but also fundraising for cancer charity and I found that really really uplifting.
1: And the Deaf Café?
0: The Death Cafe, and many of your listeners probably won't have heard of a Death Cafe. I certainly hadn't. And I came across it in Coffs Harbour. And the Death Cafe is a place where people can gather together, perfect strangers, and talk about death and everything that goes with it, their own personal experiences, their own health, how they've lost loved ones. And it's a safe place where people can communicate about this topic that we often find very hard to access and talk about normally. You know, we see in the film this really powerful scene of strangers coming together in a yoga studio at the back of Coffs Harbour and having very frank, very emotional conversations about their own experiences. But you can also sort of witness them unlocking something really important in themselves in terms of coping strategies and insights that wouldn't have happened unless they gathered
1: in that way. The title of the film is Live the Life You Please... To what extent did you discover that people weren't living the life they pleased before they got the diagnosis or when they were caring for somebody with the diagnosis
0: yeah i think that diagnosis point was a catalyst for everyone that we filmed with and we were fortunate that we actually didn't find anyone as we we're making this film, who was having a really poor time of it. And I suppose that's partly because we were looking for people who were receiving good access to services. And what we know is that in Australia, not everyone has great access to end of life care services, but we wanted to show what was possible when you could get that. This idea that the things that you may want in your life change after you get a diagnosis, you know, was a common theme. The things that people have been doing before they got sick were different from what they chose to do afterwards. And I think that's where the real learning for the rest of us healthy people
1: is. Now. Get on and do the stuff you want to do.
0: Yeah, right, just it seems really self-evident, um, but it's great to have that reminder.
1: Mike Hill, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. And if people still want to see the movie, uh, the film, I should say, where can they see it?
0: They should visit the website. There are more sessions being added every week. LiveTheLifeYouPlease.com
1: And we'll have that on our website. Mike, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report.
0: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Norman.
1: Filmmaker Mike Hill. To use another hackneyed cliché, The Health Report this week is full of them. Now for something completely different. There's nothing politicians like better than announcing they're spending money. And sometimes it's billions, often on a program that sounds terrific. But research quoted by Andrew Lee, the Assistant Minister for Treasury and an academic economist, in a speech last week suggests that some of these billions are not well spent and could be better directed or refined if there was the kind of evaluation or scientific study that medications and some treatments undergo. I spoke to Andrew Lee earlier.
3: Thanks, Norman. Great to be with you.
1: Well, this is close love of yours, given you're an economist and you like evidence. So you're like a happy as a pig in mud, aren't really talking about this stuff?
3: Absolutely. I only really have one big idea in policy, which is that we should do a better job of measuring what works. And one of the great revolutions in medicine, as you know, was the move from eminence-based medicine to evidence-based medicine, moving away from the hairy old experts to actually tossing a coin and seeing what worked. That, That transformed the power of medicine and saved millions of lives. So you're talking no, about the randomised
1: control trial and associated technologies.
3: Absolutely. There's early randomised trials around scurvy and battlefield burns, but they really don't hit their stride until the middle of the 20th century when you start seeing randomised trials for things like the polio vaccine. Straight after the polio vaccine is developed, it's rolled out in a randomised trial across the United States for hundreds of thousands of school students. So now, it's shown to work, and yeah, the next year it's mainstream.
1: Not wanting to cut you off in your flood of ideas, but the core issue, here that you're suggesting and others you're not the first to suggest it. In fact I think Peter Bohm, who was Minister for Health in the Liberal government many years ago instituted a heavy duty evaluation policy then is that we don't evaluate what we do. What I don't understand from what you're saying is the role of the randomised control trial in evaluation because just to go on for a bit more it strikes me that the real problem is commissioning and it comes from you, ULOG, any minister, is that you've got a policy, you're desperate to put it into place, and you put into place a non-evidence-based program, and then try and pick up the pieces during evaluation later. The notorious one was a reading program that some jurisdictions in Australia instituted at millions and millions of dollars, which probably contributed significantly to illiteracy in Australia, and didn't follow the 31 randomized trials, which showed how you teach literacy to children.
3: Yeah, you're right. We need to do a better job, not only of conducting good evaluations, but also listening to the results. One of the things that we're keen to do through the Australian Centre for Evaluation is to roll out more rigorous evaluations and you you can look to examples overseas as to whether that's been a problem. I spoke in a a recent speech about an evaluation through randomised means of 10 different US job training programs that found that only one of those 10 boosted earnings at the six year mark. It's not because the designers were foolish or knaves, it's because it's really hard to design a good job training program.
1: Program. Yeah, and you're spending money on evaluation so that you get more evaluation to the system to find out what works. But let's get back to this commissioning because if we take healthcare and you look at, say, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee or the TGA, in theory, they use randomized trials. They say, we're not going to implement this drug unless there's a randomized trial attached. Should you wait? To institute policies before there is a randomised trial.
3: We're not going to have a requirement that everything that comes before Cabinet be subjected to a randomised trial, but we are building up the notion within government that you should aim for the best quality evaluation possible. Sometimes that'll be a randomised trial, sometimes that'll be a high-quality quasi-experiment. We're trying to move away from the idea that you've done an evaluation if you've got a group of people in who ask the participants whether they like the program. Right now, government is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on evaluations, but a lot of that's being out outsourced, and the people who it's being outsourced to have a strong incentive to send in their reports saying that the government is doing a good job. Uh, We're looking at ways of insourcing, of using the Australian Centre for Evaluation as being a resource for the entire Commonwealth government, and indeed something could be drawn on by state and territory governments too, in order to do more rigorous evaluation.
1: So let's be specific for a moment. Several years ago, the federal government instituted a program that looked good on paper to give better access to psychologists. And evaluations, some evaluations have said this is a privy program, but really when you look at it, it doesn't benefit the people that it's really targeted at. But if you were to do that again, would you insist that, well, if we're going to do this to get better access to psychologists, we want some sort of randomised trial. So, in other words, the way of implementing the programme has nested within it the evaluation that might be spat out five years later?
3: Well, my job's to encourage rather than to insist. Uh, evaluation isn't like... Well, $6 billion, billion
1: dollars is a lot of money on that programme, for example.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, we've had uh, other studies that have looked at hundreds of billions of dollars being spent without good evaluation frameworks under the former government. So we know that there's a problem out there. But the way in which we're tackling it is by working collaboratively with policymakers right across the government, encouraging people to use the highest quality evaluation tools with the notion, too, that evaluation doesn't just give you a tick or a cross. It can help you refine the program.
1: What we're not very good at, and this is where it becomes political, is disengagement investment, finding out that something doesn't work and you're going to stop spending on it. So for example, your government, or your colleague Mark Butler, stopped extended consultations within that access scheme to psychologists. And there's a lot of kickback. So whenever you're stopping doing something, it's really tough once you've instituted it. How do you deal with the politics of it and the expectations that once you've funded a program, it's actually just going to be refunded?
3: Well, I think in the way that Mark Butler did, of pointing to the evidence behind that program and being very clear that we're a government that's driven by evidence. The more often you do that, the more you create an expectation within the community that the evidence will hold sway. And the more that you create an expectation within the public service, that good idea ideas uh, will need to be backed up by hard evidence. We've now got great data. The administrative data is far better than it was a decade ago. And that means that the cost of running rigorous evaluations is now much lower because you don't have to do the bespoke surveys. Uh, You simply have to do random allocation or get some quasi-experiment in place. It could be as simple as if you're sending out a letter to people, send out two versions of that letter and find out which one works best. And it might go all the way through to the sort of evaluations of job training programs in the US that I spoke about before.
1: How are you going to retrofit something like the National Disability Scheme to this, which is becoming unaffordable, and you don't need to be Einstein to know that a lot of the interventions happening there have got very little evidence behind them, and the outcomes are not well-defined.
3: It's difficult to retrofit evaluation. It's difficult to come along afterwards and put in place a good quality impact evaluation. I think there's lots of opportunities, though, within the National Disability Insurance Scheme to look at ways of better evaluating what we're doing. I was discussing with public servants this morning a couple of aspects of that scheme where we might look at evaluations, including early intervention and the challenge of keeping care workers. It's a sector with very high turnover in which there's a lot of theories about how to maintain workers, but not a lot of hard evidence. So there's, there's all kinds of areas in which we're able to rigorously evaluate things. You know, there's that old British medical journal tongue-in-cheek piece that says parachutes haven't been randomised. But the fact that parachutes haven't been randomised hasn't stopped the US military from randomising parachute boots and showing very rigorously that if you jump out in the right constructed boots, you're less likely to get ankle injuries. Sometimes you can't randomise the big scheme, but there's aspects of it around that can be rigorously evaluated.
1: Anjali, thanks for joining us on The Health Support.
3: Thanks so much, Norman.
1: Assistant Minister for Treasury Andrew Lee ending today's health report. I'm Norman Swan and we'll see you again next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.